Welcome to this PGSM podcast. I'm here with Caroline Broderick, staff specialist in sports and exercise medicine at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Australia. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you, Vivek. Um, you work a lot with um, with children with uh, chronic diseases, and recently you have focused more and more on physical activity. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your work? Yes, sure. Um, I suppose our clinic is quite unique. There is no other pediatric or adolescent sport specific. Uh, sport and exercise medicine clinic in Australia. We're the only one. And our patient load is divided. Probably about 50% of our patients are uh, people with sports-related injuries or adolescents and children with sports-related injuries. And the other 50% are children with chronic disease for which we prescribe exercise and do exercise testing to evaluate symptoms with exercise. Um, So it's a, a unique facility in that we have quite sick children and elite adolescent athletes at the other end of the spectrum all mixing together in the waiting room. Um, We see all children who have bone marrow transplantation at the hospital. There's some studies in adults that show that it's very important to get exercise started in the early days. We've just finished a feasibility study looking at um, an inpatient exercise program for children undergoing transplants and we start that as early as the first week post-transplant. so, and then obviously continue for the three to six months and then as an outpatient program following that. Another group that we regularly see are newly diagnosed diabetics um, to implement exercise as part of their routine medical management of their condition. We also see um, children with haemophilia, it's a particular area of interest of mine, um, looking at safety of exercises but also exercise prescription for children with haemophilia and there are a number of other um, medical groups another study that's just about to get underway in our hospital is looking at an uh, exercise program for children with mitochondrial myopathies currently there are no randomized controlled trials looking at uh, the program in these despite the fact that when exercise programs in adults with mitochondrial myopathies have huge effect sizes so we're excited about that as well you mentioned uh, four different groups, and um, I can imagine that those uh, exercise programs are different. Can you tell us, for example, the first one with the bone marrow transplantation? You said they start one week after they've had the transplant. What do you do? Well, and that's uh, the logistics of the situation dictate a bit what we can do. Clearly, they're um, immunocompromised at this point in time, so all exercise in the early hospital days needs to be done in the hospital room and we put a a bike in their room. Obviously, it's age-appropriate. We start from about children aged four up until 18, so they have quite different programs. Sometimes it's just use of EXA games, um, which are um, uh, exercise-related video games, essentially, that can be done in the room. The logistics of doing external or, or more vigorous exercise is difficult, given their fatigue, their nausea, all their side effects, and also the confined space of the room. We try and start with some resistance training early on too, so that might involve TheraBand, it might involve uh, weights, free weights, or in young children it might just involve some functional exercises like getting up out of a chair and back or up on your toes, some calf raises. Um, We use pedal exercises in the bed so that they can simulate cycling in, in a recumbent position as well. And then the next group you mentioned, the children with diabetes who are, who are stable, 
what kind of exercise do you do with them? Um, so we have, well, two, the two groups, the, the type 2 diabetes, which we, we weren't in years gone by seeing a lot of, but we are now starting to see in adolescence. And in that group, we use exercise as a means of improving insulin sensitivity. So um, large muscle group aerobic exercise in that population, but also some resistance training as well. And there's evidence to tell us that exercise in the absence of weight loss is effective in improving insulin sensitivity in children with type 2 diabetes. Um, in type 1 diabetes, we have a, a different approach. We're not aiming, there's no evidence that exercise will improve um, glycemic control in this population, but we are um, using it to try and prevent complications of diabetes in terms of cardiovascular disease. And also, it, there is um, certainly the effect of reducing insulin needs in, or requirements in people that exercise. We also have uh, groups of children who are approaching the elite end of sport and regulating their blood sugar levels can be difficult and, and requires a lot of trial and error. And we've found that insulin pumps has really improved glycemic control in this population particularly so that they can do unstructured or unplanned exercise without having to work out timing of meals. Yeah. And your PhD was, was on haemophilia, children with haemophilia. What kind of exercise? Because that's very difficult of course if they fall or have a trauma. Yeah, it was interesting what we found with that because one of the main studies that I did for my PhD was to look at association of bleeding with sports participation in children with haemophilia. And what we found is that there is a moderate increase in risk of bleeding while they're doing the activity. But what came as a surprise to us was that the absolute risk when you look over a period of time is actually quite low. And the reason for that is that even very active children only exercise for a very small proportion of the time. And so if you double a risk for a very small proportion of the time, the overall risk doesn't increase that much. Um, and certainly the other thing we found that in countries with good availability of prophylaxis, that timing of prophylaxis was able to be changed to uh, prevent bleeding episodes. And, and really what we found was that children can be very active. Um, we would still advise against sports in which the risk of intracranial haemorrhage was, even if it was a very small risk, if there was any risk, but most sports are now on the table for children with haemophilia, particularly in countries that have availability of prophylaxis. And, and the last group you mentioned, the children with the myopathies, <laughs> can you tell us a bit more about that? Why? Yes, so children with mitochondrial myopathy, um, they have limited aerobic metabolism, so they um, can't they have symptoms with exercise in terms of very poor exercise tolerance and muscle pain with exercise and when we look at adults with this condition there have been several randomized controlled trials which have shown great improvements in aerobic capacity and strength with an exercise program and actually occurring at the at the level of the mitochondria so when muscle biopsies show that they have a reduced um, mutant DNA load in the mitochondria in those that have undergone an exercise program. So it has exciting ramifications for children, but hasn't actually been 
um, studied in children. So we're starting, again, because it's not a hugely common condition, we're starting with a feasibility study looking at whether it's feasible, a three-month exercise intervention involving both strength and aerobic training in these children. And then hopefully... Um, if it appears to be feasible, then rolling it out into a randomised controlled trial, which will need to be multi-centred just because of the um, fact that it's not a common condition. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to add for our audience? Um, I suppose from the patient population that I see, I see that activity or inactivity is a far greater problem than physical activity. We can deal with overuse injuries and sports injuries in children and adolescents, but the problems of inactivity potentially are lifelong. So I think recognising that there are vulnerable periods of growth and modifying training during that time, but um, trying not to put uh, children out of activity for too long a period of time because there is the thought that they drop out and never go back. So I think early management of injuries and trying to prevent overuse injuries by modifying training during vulnerable periods of growth. Okay, and then when you say vulnerable periods, how does the doctor or the coach know what the vulnerable period is? Well, that's a very difficult thing because it's not really based on chronological age. It relates more to maturational age and timing of puberty. Mm -hmm. um, so peak height velocity varies depending on the maturational status. It tends to be around the age of 12 in girls and around the age of 14 in boys. So you're really looking at between 10 and 16, um, but um, you can be more specific in individuals, but that's the age group that where we need to look at modifying training. The other topical bit about children of that age clearly is in the contact sports is the discrepancy in size. If you ever look at a under 13s football team, you'll see huge discrepancies in size depending on the timing of puberty and the pace of puberty. So this brings us back to the old question of whether or not we should have weight for age competitions in some contact or collision sports and the problem is that there's not been any studies looking at injury data in weight for age competition so it's hard to know there is a, a thought that it probably is safer for smaller kids but we don't have the evidence to show that and I think sporting bodies are waiting for that evidence before they actually go to the trouble of organising sport on anything other than chronological age because the logistics are much harder. Yeah because you, you were a co-author on the consensus paper um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so that was looking at trying to determine age in, a, in adolescent athletes. Um, there were two reasons for doing that, really. One is to try and make it a level playing field in terms of performance, and the other thing is to try and reduce injury. I mean, sadly, what we found is that there are ways of um, assessing maturational age, but... In terms of chronological age, the birth certificate is clearly the best way and, and anything other than that is really a proxy for age. There's some new um, things on the horizon. I know that FIFA are using wrist MRIs to try and include or exclude um, athletes from youth competitions, but it's an inexact science and there will be... And, and elite athletes tend to be outliers. They're the ones at the end of the bell curve, so it's very difficult to exclude people on the basis of the currently available techniques. Well, thank you very, very much for your time and I hope you will enjoy the Netherlands. I'm sure I will. Thank you, Babette. Thank you. <laughs>